Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, She Stood Up Straight. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 25th, 2019. I don't know her name. I don't know where she comes from. I don't know why she appears in the synagogue on the particular Sabbath day our gospel reading records. But I can picture her, a weary woman, resilient and resigned, a woman bent over and quite unable to stand up, a woman who spends her long days staring at the ground, staring at her own feet, staring at the dusty sandals of those who pass her by on the street. Not because she wants to avoid eye contact, or miss each morning sunrise, or forget what the stars look like, or never raise her face to the evening breeze but because she has no other choice. Luke tells us that by the time the bent-over woman encounters Jesus, she's been crippled for 18 years. I wonder if she showed up for worship every weekend during those two exhausting decades. I wonder if anyone noticed her. I wonder what hope or meaning or solace the weekly ritual afforded her, if any. I wonder what sort of life she shuffled home to afterwards. According to the text, the woman doesn't ask Jesus for help when she appears in the synagogue on the particular Sabbath day in question. He's teaching, most likely surrounded by a crowd. She doesn't approach him. Who knows if she even notices him, bent over as she is. But he sees her. He sees her. When he calls her over and she approaches, he puts the sermon on hold and says the thing Jesus always says in the Gospels when he encounters the sick, the broken, the dying, the dead. You are set free from your ailment. Then the Gospel tells us Jesus laid his hands on her, and immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. This is the line I've been stumbling over all week, the line that makes my brain burn. Immediately she stood up straight. I think the line bowls me over because I'm not accustomed to thinking of the church as a place where hunched, crippled, exhausted people are invited, encouraged, and released to stand up straight. Especially not people who are disenfranchised and marginalized by those who hold power and authority both inside and outside the church. Women, people of color, immigrants, the LGBTQ community, the poor, the homeless, the elderly, the incarcerated, the mentally ill, the differently abled, the uneducated or undereducated, the spiritually broken. I write this to my own shame. Why don't I think of the church as a place where people unable to stand up on their own can come to have their dignity restored and their full potential realized? Why, when I think of the church, do I more often picture people bent over, bent over under the weight of shame, judgment, invisibility, false piety, condemnation, prejudice, legalism, and harmful theology. Unfortunately, the gospel story itself offers the answer. As soon as Jesus unbinds the crippled woman, the leader of the synagogue voices his displeasure and indignation. Essentially, his angry criticism drowns out her joyful praise. There are six days on which work ought to be done, he tells the crowds. Come on those days and be cured not on the Sabbath day.
In other words, a leader protests because Jesus disrupts the regular Sabbath schedule of the synagogue. Jesus messes with tradition. Worse, he places a socially expendable, physically disabled, spiritually vulnerable woman at the center of the tradition. Jesus allows the woman's need to interrupt his own sermon and welcomes her praise song, even though it upends the synagogue's order of service. To be clear, though, the leader of the synagogue is not a bad guy. His intentions are not evil, and his concerns are not without merit. He cares about right worship, right belief, right practice. He cares about honoring the Sabbath, obeying God's laws, and upholding the faithful traditions of a spiritual community. There was nothing intrinsically wrong with any of these goals. But what the leader misses is the heart of the Sabbath, the heart of God's law, the heart of the tradition. What the leader misses is compassion. The kind of compassion that trumps legalism every single time. The kind of compassion that doesn't cling to orthodoxy simply for orthodoxy's sake. The kind of compassion that consistently sees the broken body, the broken soul, the broken spirit, before it sees the broken commandment. This story, like so many gospel stories, illustrates a basic truth about God's inbreaking kingdom. The kingdom doesn't care about our timing, or our sense of etiquette, or our obsession with propriety and decorum. The kingdom cares about love. It cares about love now. Most of us, like the woman in the story, know what it's like to be bound by circumstances that diminish, distort, and wound us. Most of us know, or have known, what it's like to lose agency, mobility, and dignity to forces too powerful for us to defeat on our own. Some of us are still crippled because we have not experienced the church as a place where we are seen, cherished, called, invited, unbound, and released to praise God with our unique stories of healing. How, given these realities, can we leave room for Jesus to show up and surprise us? How can we make sure we're not so entrenched in our theological, liturgical, cultural, or political points of view that we fear and resist the new? the unorthodox, the unconventional? How can we make sure that our religious practices and preferences don't get in the way of God's tender, compassionate, unbending? Jesus responds to the leader of the synagogue by calling the healed woman a daughter of Abraham. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Jesus doesn't stop at freeing the woman, He restores her to community, to her community. At the same time, he calls on that community to repent of its hypocrisy and narrow-mindedness and embrace her as its own, not as an object of pity or scorn, but as a daughter, as an heir, as a human being worthy of both love and dignity. Jesus laid his hands on her, and immediately she stood up straight. What would it be like if the church were known for this? for restoring stature, dignity, community, and honor to people crippled in all the terrible ways the world cripples them. Jesus is all about our unbending, our standing tall, our finding our voices so that we can praise the God who has unbound us. May we be about such compassionate acts, too. For books this week, Dan reviews Dear Zealots, Letters from a Divided Land by Amos Oz. When Amos Oz died on December 28, 2018, at the age of 79, he was widely honored as one of Israel's most prolific and respected public intellectuals. Indeed, his 40 books of fiction and nonfiction have been translated into 45 languages. 
This book was one of the very last that he published, and is comprised of three essays. He says that he wrote it first and foremost for his grandchildren, and that he seeks the listening ear of those whose opinions differ from his own. The first essay explores the nature of fanaticism, which Oz observes is an elemental fixture of human nature, and not the preserve of any one group like ISIS or the KKK. He urges us to move beyond binary black-and-white thinking and to embrace ambiguity and complexity. We can do this by cultivating a sense of curiosity, imagination, and even humor. The second and longest essay tries to reclaim all that is good about secular Jewish humanism, in contrast to Judaism's religious and political manifestations. There is a simple imperative in the deepest roots of Judaism, he says, cause no pain. Honor the equal rights of all human beings to be different, and embrace doubt, disagreement, and debate as sources of creativity and the roots of a pluralistic democracy. The deepest heart of a robustly secular Judaism affirms what's written on a 3,000-year-old, six-inch piece of pottery found by archaeologists. The demand for justice for the weak and the deprived, the slave, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the infant, and the pauper. The third essay considers Israel's place in the Middle East and in the larger world and argues for two-state solution, a position Oz has advocated since 1967. If there are not two states, says Oz, there will be one state. And whether that one state is ruled only by Arabs or only by Jews, in his view, it would sooner or later be a catastrophe. A binational state, in his view, is a sad joke. The struggle for both Jews and Palestinians is not one of binary good versus evil, but a much more complicated story of justice against justice, and often, to my sorrow, injustice against injustice. On the last page of his book, Oz writes that he is fearful for the future, of his government's policies that he finds shameful, of the fanaticism and the violence. Nonetheless, he remains to the end a proud Israeli. What I have seen here in my lifetime is far less, yet also far more, than what my parents and their parents ever dreamed of. For movies this week, Dan reviews Trey Maison Dessan. In the last 30 years, America's prison population has skyrocketed from 300,000 to more than 2 million. About 7.3 million Americans are under some form of penal control, jail, prison, parole, or probation. Our incarceration rates dwarf those of other developing countries, including Russia, China, and Iran. Germany, for example, imprisons about 93 of every 100,000 adults. In America, we imprison 750 per 100,000. This documentary film from the PBS Independent Lens series explores the most forgotten people in this national nightmare, the one in 14 children in the U.S. who have a parent in prison. These children grow up without their inmate parent, which parent is often demonized by society. The children are often seen as guilty by association, that they too are bad people. Of course, for the kids, the inmate is always just their mom or dad. The film follows three children, Dasan Lopes is six years old. His mother is transitioning back into society with the help of her social worker, parole officer, and the local Cub Scout troop. Maison Tixiera is a brilliant little boy who has been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. His grandmother is holding things together for four and a half more years while his father is in prison and his mother is in California. Trey Jansen is only 13, but he's already on probation and faces jail time. On Saturdays, there are two-hour unmediated visits at the prison 
which visits are full of tears of joy and sorrow that will break your heart right in two. And finally, for poems this week, Questionnaire by Wendell Berry. One, how much poison are you willing to eat for the success of the free market and global trade? Please name your preferred poisons. Two, for the sake of goodness, how much evil are you willing to do? Fill in the following blanks with the names of your favorite evils and acts of hatred. Three, what sacrifices are you prepared to make for culture and civilization? Please list the monuments, shrines, and works of art you would most willingly destroy. Four, in the name of patriotism and the flag, how much of our beloved land are you willing to desecrate? List in the following spaces, the mountains, rivers, towns, farms, you could most readily do without. Five, state briefly the ideas, ideals or hopes, the energy sources, the kinds of security for which you would kill a child. Name, please, the children whom you would be willing to kill. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 25th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.